Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. This is my first show back in two weeks because I took the last two weeks off for the Thanksgiving holiday. I actually left town on the Saturday before Thanksgiving, which made me unable to do my show for that Saturday. And of course, the Saturday following that, I was still out of town. But now I'm back in town and I'm doing what is going to be my next to the last show of Words on Film for this calendar year. So I've got this week and I've got next week, and um, there's a bit of a cliche saying so many things to do, so little time. I feel like that's the same with me. I have so many movies to watch and so little time, but for next week's show, I have a maximum five movies to pick or five movies to watch and review for you on this show. So I've got a lot on my plate right now, Uh, but I have four new movies to review for you. Um, None of them are exactly brand new because they didn't come out this past weekend, but they are new enough and they came out during the Thanksgiving week. So it's time for me to get into them right now. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Encanto. Encanto is a computer animated musical family comedy Produced by the Walt Disney Animated Studios and distributed by Walt Disney Studio Motion Pictures. It is actually the 60th, the 60th full-length animated feature produced by the studio. And I don't know if that number includes the Disney Pixar films, although I think it does. But really, uh, who's counting those actual films? But it is uh, one of the few... Uh, Disney animated features that is actually not based on a previous source material. So it is a refreshingly original story. It also very much like another Disney film under the Marvel Studios banner, The Eternals, has a very wide array of supporting characters. Unlike The Eternals, Encanto has a very clever way of making us know who these characters are and what they can do. And it's amazing how Encanto could make you know all the characters, maybe not necessarily like them, but that's not entirely the point. And the Eternals was unable to do that. But Encanto is definitely a colorful film, and it's not just colorful for its animation or its diverse cast of characters, but it's also very colorful because of its music and also its originality. But anyway, Encanto is a movie about a young Colombian girl, um, Colombia being the northernmost country in South America, who has to face the frustration of being the only member of her family without magical powers. The young Colombian girl in this case is a charming young woman by the name of Mirabelle, who's voiced by an actress named Stephanie Beatrice. And if you don't exactly know who Stephanie Beatrice is, you're not alone. But that's actually what I like about uh, Disney animated features. They don't necessarily cast A-list voice talent for their movies. 
And I'm one of these people who doesn't necessarily mind if I know who the voice of a, a certain character in an animated film is, but it is nice to know that Disney, um, probably a little bit more than Pixar does, cast people who are right for the role, not necessarily people who are A-list talent. And other animation studios like DreamWorks and Illumination do have the tendency to cast well-known names, not necessarily actors who are right for the roles. But Mirabelle is an enchanting uh, young woman, despite the fact that she does not actually have any magical powers, unlike the people who live in the sprawling Colombian home with them. But we're first introduced to a man by the name of Alma, excuse me, a woman by the name of Alma Madrigal, who loses her husband Pedro but saves her three infant children when her magic candle creates a sentient casita or little house for the madrigals, the family in, in which to live. And because of the protective casita, which is kind of a house with a personality all its own, and it's very hard to describe in words, but you kind of have to see the movie for yourself to get a sense of why the house is magical and why it has a personality. But a village grows in uh, around this uh, casita with the magical family family gaining superhuman abilities, which they use to help the villagers. However, Alma's son, Bruno is the black sheep of the family. And Bruno is voiced by John Leguizamo. One of the only one of, one of the few well-known actors who provides a voice for one of the characters, but, but also unlike that annoying three toed sloth from the ice age films, John Leguizamo is very funny in this role. And he also is a better fit. He's not desperate for a laugh here, but anyway, Alma's son, Bruno is ostracized over under misunderstanding concerning his gift of precognition and Mirabelle, the youngest daughter of Julieta and the granddaughter of Alma, uh, also has no perceived special abilities. So the other members of the family have, um, different superpowers, if you will. There's one daughter, or rather one granddaughter of Alma who has super hearing. There's another one who can change the weather. There's another woman who has superhuman strength. There's a a fourth one who's little miss perfect. According to Mirabelle, who is not only drop dead gorgeous, but she also can produce flowers out of midair, which has its advantages. And there's another younger grandchild who can actually talk to animals. Mirabelle, on the other hand, does not have a magical power and why she doesn't have a magical power is very hard to explain in a couple of sentences, but the movie elaborates upon it very well. And there's also a really good, uh, first song where Mirabelle is basically providing exposition for the children of the village who don't live in this casita and also vicariously to the audience. And I think it was a very good, good and creative setup for what's in store for us as we're watching the film. So my, um, I'm sorry, I forgot her name in, in for just a second. Mirabelle is trying to find her special power. And 
I'm not going to tell you what that special power ultimately becomes or if she actually has a special power, but Encanto, as I said, is one of the few, the very few Walt Disney animated features that is not based on a book or a legend or any kind of previous medium before this. And truth be told, there were actually no Walt Disney animated features before Walt Disney himself passed away that were original. As a matter of fact, there were no Walt Disney animated features, full-length animated features, I should say, that uh, were original before The Lion King. And even The Lion King itself was loosely based on Hamlet. And some people might say it plagiarized the story of Kimba, which was this uh, anime for kids in Japan. I wouldn't go that far, but I will give credit to The Lion King for being the first original Disney animated feature. But unlike The Lion King, I don't think Encanto you could tie to any other previous medium, whether it be of Colombian folklore or what have you. But then again, I don't know all the folklore that almost slipped there. I don't know all the folklore that is especially in South America, but also international. But the story was written by actually a number of people, Jared Bush and Byron Howard, who also directed the film. Also, Charisse Castro-Smith, Jason Hand, Nancy Cruz, and last but not least, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who not only wrote the story and contributed to the screenplay, but he also wrote several of the songs for the movie. And you can definitely get a sense of Lin-Manuel Miranda's rapid-fire approach to his uh, songwriting and lyricism. Nobody raps in this uh, film, unlike Hamilton or In the Heights, which were Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, Broadway breakthroughs. But um, it, it still some has some great music, and I loved just about all the characters. I think Stephanie Beatrice did a great job voicing uh, Mirabelle, who's very much, even though she has no superpowers or supernatural abilities is certainly the anchor that holds this film down because let's face it when you have a family that has a lot of magical powers there's bound to be some consternation uh within the family especially with the uh black sheep of her uncle uh bruno who's voiced by john leguizamo but this has an amazing diverse cast of actors who provide the voices for the characters, including but not limited to Maria Cecilia Botero, who plays the matriarch Alma, as well as Jessica Darrow, who provides the voice of Mirabelle's mother, Luisa. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Mirabelle's sister, Luisa. There's uh, Angie Cepeda, Carolina Gaetan, uh, Diane Guerrero, uh, the latter of whom is from Orange is the New Black. She was one of the more memorable characters there. Uh, Wilmer Valderrama, who used to be on that 70s show. And I could go on, but I'm not going to list a roster of the actors in the film. What I am going to say is they all work together very well. They all provide unique and distinct personalities for their characters. And not only does the film have a great story, but the music is not only enchanting and catchy, but it also provides some very well-needed exposition and it advances the story the way that music really should. 
So Encanto is one of Disney's most original films. The downside of it is it being original that I can't exactly explain it in a few sentences, but I took a a lot of time to give you the gist of the story. But I will tell you that it is very enchanting. And Encanto, by the way, is a word that in English is equivalent to charm or glamour, spell. It's, it's something that's, that's very enchanting, for lack of a better word. And the movie is certainly no exception, which is why it gets my rating of a knockout. And this is a film that I could certainly see again. And once it gets released onto Disney+, Plus, Blu-ray, 4K, which it inevitably will, I think that people of all backgrounds will watch this film Again and again, especially kids, whether or not their parents will love it, (laughs) which they probably won't, you know, after seeing it again and again, which happens, but kids will love it. And I think adults will to a certain degree as well. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Ghostbusters Afterlife. This is a film that premiered in theaters on November 19th, 2021, so it's new-ish. It feels a little old to me because I usually review films that came out on the Friday before I record my show, but I wasn't able to do my show on November 20th, so I'm reviewing it for you right now. Ghostbusters Afterlife, unlike the 2016 Ghostbusters movie, is a sequel to the first two Ghostbusters films, not a remake or a reboot. So this movie takes place after the events that took place in New York City in the first two Ghostbusters films. However, you will hear more allusions to the original 1984 Ghostbusters movie than you will to the 1989 sequel. As for the 2016 movie that was simply called Ghostbusters, and it really very much like Ghostbusters Afterlife should have had a title that distinguished itself from the 1984 film, it doesn't take place in an alternate universe or even that's implied. It takes place after the events of those two films. And in Ghostbusters Afterlife, a single mom and her two kids arrive in a small town, which is known as Somerville, Oklahoma, and they begin to discover their connection to the original Ghostbusters and the secret legacy their grandfather left behind. Now, I am very tempted to reveal to you who the father of single mother Callie, who's played by Carrie Coon, and the grandfather of Trevor, played by Finn Wolfhard, and Phoebe, played by McKenna Grace, are, or is, I should say, but that might actually ruin the film. But uh, Callie and her two uh, children, Trevor and Phoebe, Uh, I believe they live in New York City, and they are evicted from their apartment, so they have nowhere to go except for their father and grandfather, respectively's house. And their grandfather died 
a couple of actually weeks before they moved into this house. And Callie has been estranged from her father for quite some time, whereas Trevor and Phoebe didn't even know their grandfather. And what's interesting is that McKenna Grace is actually the uh, brains of <laughs> this family. She she takes after her grandfather, and not only is she incredibly smart, but she also believes in the supernatural and also eventually finds evidence of the Ghostbusters existing. And the Ghostbusters have since gone their separate ways. And this is actually not a spoiler, but there are actors who make appearances who were from the original Ghostbusters films, the major actors, who appear as their previous Ghostbusters self in this movie. So Bill Murray makes an appearance as Peter Venkman, which is literally the first time he's played this character uh, in 32 years. Um, Dan Aykroyd reappears as Dr. Ray Stance, and Ernie Hudson reappears as Winston Zeddemore. And the final um, Ghostbuster, Harold Ramis, is of course deceased. But his uh, disappearance is actually explained in this film without giving too much away. Also, Annie Potts appears as Janine Melnitz, the role that she played in the first two Ghostbusters films. Now, these four actors and Zagorny Weaver appeared in the 2016 Ghostbusters film, but as different characters. It was almost as if the actors were giving their approval to the new Ghostbusters cast, but in here they actually play themselves, which leads me to presume that the 2016 Ghostbusters film with Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, Kate McKinnon, and Leslie Jones took place in sort of an alternate Ghostbusters universe. But I could go on about that Ghostbusters film getting a lot more unfair criticism, which was rooted in mostly in sexism, but also in racism because Leslie Jones got targeted by a number of Twitter trolls very unfairly. And I don't imagine that Ernie Hudson got as much crap for uh, unfair crap for being in the original Ghostbusters film as Leslie Jones did in the reboot. But I think people will look back at that Ghostbusters film and reevaluate it. It may not have been better than the original 1984 movie, but it was certainly better than Ghostbusters 2. But anyway, I've explained a lot about the, the people who make appearances in this film, but the plot of the movie involves the grandchildren, particularly Phoebe, um, investigating the earthquakes that happen in Somerville, Oklahoma, despite the fact that Somerville does not, uh, is not on a fault line or even has any sort of volcanic activity underneath its surface. And this also arouses the curiosity of an overlooked summer school teacher by the name of Gruberson, who's played in this film, likable as always by Paul Rudd. And eventually Trevor teams up with Phoebe as well as another misfit kid by the name of podcast. Who's played by Logan Kim 
as well as a pretty young girl named Lucky, na- uh, played by Celeste O'Connor, who Trevor is obviously smitten with. And they investigate the paranormal activity that goes on literally underneath the surface of this small town. And as it turns out, the same kind of paranormal activity that take that took place in the original 1984 film takes place here. In other words, Zool, the Keymaster, and the Gatekeeper make another appearance here and repos- repossess different characters in this film, not the Zigorny Weaver and Rick Moranis characters of the original. And despite the fact that the movie does nostalgically look back at the 1984 film, it does have a different kind of tone than the original Ghostbusters film, which I actually liked. I didn't especially, I wasn't especially crazy about the fact that Ghostbusters afterlife took a similar tone to stranger things. Um, including having Finn Wolfhard who, uh, made his breakthrough on stranger things and will undoubtedly be in the next season of the show. But I did like the fact that they took the haunting a bit more seriously than the characters did in the 1984 original. And I, I think that of course I had no problem with the 1984 original. The 1984 original is a comedy and science fiction classic. But I did like how Ghostbusters Afterlife did not try to copy the plot of the original film. I did think that, however, in borrowing some of the tone from Stranger Things, it also kind of delved into cliche territory, uh, particularly where... um, the subplot with Trevor and Lucky was concerned. And I I thought that was a little bit of a a trope that the movie didn't exactly need. And I also thought that the ending of the film, which I won't give away, was also a bit uneven in its uh, sentimentality, or it added sentimentality that made the overall tone of the film somewhat uneven. And Also, the beginning of the film where the grandkids are discovering the equipment that was previously invented and used by the Ghostbusters of the 80s was a bit sluggishly paced. But I did enjoy Ghostbusters Afterlife for what it was, and maybe I'll change my mind a little bit about how good a movie it was, but it does open up the possibility of a sequel in a a scene in the end credits, which I actually thought was one of the more well-done films. So I did think that Ghostbusters Afterlife started out kind of slow, kind of sluggish, but eventually when the paranormal activity picked up, so did the movie, and the movie became actually a lot more interesting. But I did think it borrowed from other 80s tropes, particularly teen movies, 80s tropes in a way that wasn't particularly necessary and almost took a page from the Stranger Things book, which I didn't think it had to do. But I do give Ghostbusters Afterlife my rating of a checkout because for a film that is rooted in nostalgia, it actually did something a little different with most of the film. The only way that I think that the film 
should have veered away from its nostalgia was when the Stave Puffed Marshmallow Man makes not one appearance, but a few appearances. But the way that the Stave Puffed Marshmallow Man appears in this film um, as a dangerous creature, by the way, doesn't make sense when you think about how it appeared and why it appeared in the original 1984 film. Here, I just thought that director Jason Reitman, the son of Ivan Reitman, by the way, and this is uh, Jason Reitman's first foray into directing a science fiction film, but I I thought that it was more for nostalgia than it was for the greater narrative of the film. I didn't think that was necessary, but I thought that Ghostbusters Afterlife did more right for a film that was rooted in nostalgia than it did wrong, but the wrong was still pretty noticeable. Back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Tick, Tick, Boom. Tick, Tick, Boom is based on a Broadway musical that was written by Jonathan Larson, who also uh, brought us famously Rent. And it is a biographical musical drama film directed by... Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's worked on several films over the last 15 years, but this is his feature directorial debut. This is a film that premiered on Netflix on November 19th, and while I saw it during the Thanksgiving week, I didn't get to review it until now. And this movie had its world premiere at the AFI Fest on November 10th, 2021, and had a limited theatrical release on November 12th, 2021 before streaming on Netflix for you all to see. And for a directorial debut, Lin-Manuel Miranda does a great job. And I think for any film for Lin-Manuel Miranda to direct naturally, I think his forte is certainly musicals. But uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda did not actually write the musical upon which this film is based. It is a film that tells the story of um, an aspiring composer whose name is John, who we might be led to believe is actually supposed to be Jonathan Larson. As a matter of fact, Andrew Garfield, who plays the um, main character in the film, is credited as Jonathan Larson, not John, the way that the uh, character is in the uh, musical, which started out as a one-man show, but after John Larson's death in 1996, it was revised and revamped by playwright David Auburn as a three-actor piece and and premiered on Off-Broadway in 2001. It eventually made its way onto Broadway, as well as several West End, Off-West End, and Off-Broadway revivals. And given how good this movie is, it is undoubtedly going to premiere on, or rather make another appearance on Broadway. But this movie is described as semi-autobiographical. I, I guess that means that 
it, it covers the uh, screenwriters um, <laughs> butts basically because th- there probably were some moments in here that were added for dramatic effect, but it details Andrew Larson as a struggling playwright on the cusp of his 30th birthday. And he is struggling to write a musical, which is both um, a comedy and also science fiction. And the name of the musical within this, um, within Tick, Tick, Boom is named, oh man, I got to look this up. I really have to, um, well, anyway. I forgot the name of the musical he's writing, but it involves aliens and spaceships. And he is really struggling day after day in his decently rented apartment in New York City to write this musical and also get it up as a Broadway play. And we are feeling his pain through every song and every scene. And Jonathan Larson, played by Andrew Garfield here, is so committed to making this musical a big hit that he ultimately develops more of a complication, more of a complicated relationship with his girlfriend, Susan, who's played here by Alexandra Ship. And Alexandra Ship is a stunning young woman in any other music in, in any other movie be it comedy, drama, especially romantic comedy, Alexandra Ship is one of those actresses who, if you see her on screen, you do not blame the old man who is sitting on the park bench telling the main character to go after her. But things become very complicated in the relationship between Jonathan Larson and his girlfriend Susan that he really has to balance writing this play that he needs to have a hit. Otherwise he's literally out on the streets and his relationship with Susan. And it is heartbreaking to see the two of them, um, develop a conflict. But I think unlike other comedies or dramas, you can understand the stress under which Jonathan Larson finds himself. And this is before he created the musical rent which even though it premiered on Broadway after Jonathan Larson died, and that's not giving anything away in this movie. Look it up. He died. Um, I'm not going to tell you how, though. Um, Rent became a huge hit, and I I think it might have been propelled by the artist appreciation after they're dead. But again, this movie does not sugarcoat how hard it is for somebody who is a struggling actor or a struggling playwright to make it on Broadway. Um, it's, it's pretty much hard for anyone starting out unless maybe they have a trust fund or very, uh, generous parents would be able to pay their rent in their heat. And I don't think, uh, Jonathan Larson had that luxury. I mean, he was scraping together every penny he could, Um, whenever he was starving, he probably lived off of, uh, pasta and tuna fish, but he did have the support of his friends as well as some other people who have made it in the, 
Broadway business, such as his agent, uh, Rosa Stevens, who's played here by Judith Light, and also his mentor, uh, Stephen Sondheim, who does not play himself in this movie, but he's played by Bradley Whitford. And it is actually very fitting that Stephen Sondheim died on November 26th, exactly a week after Tick, Tick, Boom premiered in theaters, because this movie makes Stephen Sondheim look great. And I'm not saying whether or not that was justified, because I don't know Stephen Sondheim outside of his lyrics or his um, or his plays or his musicals, but Bradley Whitford does do such a good job playing Stephen Sondheim that for a second, I thought Stephen Sondheim was actually playing himself. And there are also some other supporting performances by people who are very well-versed in musical theater, including Robin De Jesus, who plays... Jonathan Larson's best friend, Michael, who tried to make it as an actor and couldn't, but does make a really good living for himself in advertising. You also have a background singer by the name of Caressa, who's played by Vanessa Hudgens, who's not only very much like Alexandra Ship, a knockout. In, In other words, she's very beautiful, but she can also sing really well. And also some other notable Broadway actors make cameo appearances in this film, including the great Laura Benanti as um, somebody you wouldn't expect, uh, somebody who's a field researcher in advertising. And there are also brief appearances by Lin-Manuel Miranda himself, as well as other um, Broadway stars like Bernadette Peters and Patti LuPone, amongst others. And, Tick, Tick, Boom is a very uncomfortable musical to watch because you are rooting for John Larson to make a a hit Broadway musical that's different than anything that's on the Broadway scene in the late 80s and early 90s. You know he's going to make it, but it really shows how good Andrew Garfield's performance and Lin-Manuel Miranda's direction is that he's struggling so much that you tend to forget he's actually going to achieve what he wants to achieve. And that is very hard to pull off. And it's incredibly heartbreaking when Andrew Garfield has to put aside his love for Susan, Alexandra Shipp's character, in order to make this musical happen. How he has to you know, sacrifice so much blood, sweat, and tears, and then some, to write this musical. And... Of course, him approaching the age of 30, me being 39, I know exactly where he's coming from. My 40th birthday is going to be in 11 months. I know exactly what it feels like to reach a certain age and feel like you haven't accomplished very much. But Andrew Garfield turns in the performance of his career. And that's saying a lot considering how great he was in the social network. Well, first of all, let me just say Tick, Tick, Boom is undoubtedly the best musical of the year. And that's very hard to do, especially since In the Heights, another excellent musical came out earlier this year. And it is also Andrew Garfield's best performance. It gives my rating. I give Tick, Tick, Boom my rating of a knockout. But I do have to say that Andrew Garfield turned in a great performance in The Social Network. 
The Oscars snubbed him for Best Supporting Actor. Him and Army Hammer should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Would they have won against Christian Bale in The Fighter? Probably not, but they should have at least been considered. And Andrew Garfield also turned in a great performance as the Reverend Jim Baker in the movie The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which should also get Jessica Chastain a nomination for Best Actress. But Andrew Garfield actually tops that performance in Tick, Tick, Boom, and honestly, good for him. The Oscars better recognize him for this. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Love Hard. Love Hard is one of those films that is a Christmas film, but you wouldn't exactly know it from the title of the movie. And it's a movie that stars Nina Dobrev as an L.A. girl who is unlucky in love, despite being drop-dead gorgeous, but I suppose that... Attractive people have uh, dating problems just like maybe not so attractive people do. But anyway, she uh, meets a guy on the East Coast on a dating app and des- decides to go to the East Coast in uh, a town called Lake Placid, New York, which is a real town in New York State, to surprise this man for the holidays, only to discover that she's been catfished. So... Nina Dobrev plays a young woman by the name of Natalie Bauer, who lives in L.A. and works for a website. And she is um, on a dating website where she meets a guy from Lake Placid, New York, who has great uh, pictures. And as it turns out, the, um, the person who has catfished her is a young man by the name of Josh Lynn, who's played by Jimmy O. Yang, who is not an unattractive guy, or at least not an unhandsome guy, if that's a word, but he's definitely not as attractive as the guy who um, he basically used as his profile picture, who actually is a guy who lives in his town by the name of Tag. I guess that's his nickname, and he's played by Darren Barnett. But... Um, Josh Lynn is a young man who is very smart, but he lives at home in Lake Placid, New York with his parents. He lives in the basement and he is really not the person who his, um, dating profile suggested that he was. And Nina Dobrev's character, Natalie has every right to be upset with Josh for, deceiving her. And even though Josh says that he didn't think he would take it that far, 
I think even a smart guy like Josh Lynn would know that if you make a profile and a, a woman responds to it, you're basically making them a promise. So Natalie, Nina Dobrev's character, has every right to be upset. And I think that was a good original um, way to start off this film. But the rest of the film is very, very predictable. Basically, it follows the same kind of formula that you would see in a Lifetime or especially a Hallmark Christmas film. And let me grant you, there are some people who like Hallmark Christmas films the same way they like candy. You know, they may eat a lot of it during the holidays. They know it's bad, but it's still, I wouldn't say fills a void, but it's entertaining. And I get that. But again, when a movie is trying to be above a Hallmark film, when it is essentially a Hallmark film at heart, you can kind of tell. And one prime example of this from last year is a movie starring Emma Roberts that was called Holidate. It inserted a few swear words into it, but A, it was essentially a Hallmark Christmas film, even though it premiered on Netflix, and B, the rest of it, the concept of a Holidate, was not consistent within the scope of the film. Love Hard, I think, is consistent with its predictability, but it still is predictable. But the things I really didn't like about it was when Nina Dobrev, who doesn't have to be ironic or clever, I, I think you know her looks can pretty much sell a film, um, but she... She has these lines of dialogue, which again are not Nina Dobrev's fault. It's more the writers, Daniel Mackey and Rebecca Ewing, which I have heard dozens of times before. For example, there's a scene where she says that Die Hard is her favorite movie, and she has a debate with Josh whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas film. And this is a debate that is taking a little bit more steam these um these days i think particularly where i think the anniversary of die hard is coming out you know what die hard takes place on christmas eve and the early mornings of christmas day for that reason i would consider die hard a christmas film the same way i would consider home alone a christmas film for example but anyway i'm getting a little ahead of myself but she also brings up the idea that baby it's cold outside is a song that promotes date rape which is not true, by the way, but the way that she expresses it in this film as if she's the first person to come up with this is not original. However, it does actually create a cute scene where the Lynn family is out caroling and Natalie and Josh sing on the spot a more PC, safer version of Baby It's Cold Outside, which doesn't make the quote-unquote wolf of the song who is persuading the mouse of the song to stay in, you know, it makes it a little bit less creepy. But again, if you were to go back to the film from which Baby It's Cold Outside was originally written by Frank Losser and saw actually the film itself, Neptune's Daughter, as well as the two times that was sung by different characters in the film, it wouldn't be considered a date rape song. And the fact that this movie hammers in that point and also brings up Bill Cosby's name is low-hanging fruit. But there's one other scene where 
Nina Dobrev's character tries to be ironic and fails. She says to a charismatic Uber driver about how Santa Claus is actually very creepy, you know, and he, and she says, think about it. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. That is even older than Die Hard and Baby It's Cold Outside's minor controversies. If you go back to a Ray Stevens song, Ray Stevens from Nashville, by the way, uh, he had a hit song on the novelty circuit that was called Santa Claus is Watching You, which pokes fun at the legend and the legacy of Santa Claus. So sorry, Nina, but Ray Stevens beat you to the punch. So I thought there was some charm. I did like the alternative version of Baby It's Cold Outside that Jimmy O. Yang and Nina Dobrev uh, sing on the spot during their caroling hunt. And I also did kind of like how Josh Lynn was trying to live up to his family's expectations, especially where he has an older brother who is a Pisces and a bit more of a show-off. And Josh Lynn's older brother, Owen, who's played by Harry Shum Jr., who used to be on uh, Glee, by the way, the Fox TV show. I think uh, Harry Shum plays this very delightfully over the top. But again, I did think the, the movie's attempt at being ironic while at its heart being a Hallmark Christmas film, even though it's not on Hallmark, was very disingenuous. And the love story here was very, very predictable. You know that Josh Lynn and Natalie Bauer, Jimmy O. Yang and Nina Dobrev's respective characters are going to fall in love in the end. It's very obvious. It does have a bit char- a bit of charm and some decent acting, which is why I won't give it a flunk out, but it is a strikeout. Love Hard is a strikeout because it is hindered by its predictability. It tries to be clever in ways that the internet as well as novelty songwriters have already beat it to the punch already. So it's not uh, particularly a memorable film, but for those of you who like the junky Hallmark or Lifetime Christmas films, you won't be disappointed here. But for those of you who are seeking an original Christmas film that actually does something different with the romantic comedy genre, my suggestion is look under another tree.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters and or on streaming for the week end, uh, or actually, should I say, the week of December 6th through December 10th, 2021. And I'll start with the movies that are subject to being released in theaters. And the biggest movie that's going to be released on December 10th is the awaited, I shouldn't say long-awaited, remake of West Side Story, which is an adaptation of the 1957 musical. And it is also technically a remake of the celebrated 1961 musical, That was the winner of 10 Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, George uh, Chakaris, Best Actress in a Supporting Role, Rita Moreno, Best Director, um, Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins, so two people directed this film, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction and Set Decoration for a color film. Remember, this was the early 60s. Best Costume Design for a color film, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, and Best Musical Score. So um, even though Leonard Bernstein wrote the music for West Side Story, he did not actually win uh, Best um, Musical Score for this film. I guess because... Um, the musical score has to be original for the film. So Leonard Bernstein wasn't exactly eligible. And the film was also not nominated for best original song because all the songs had been previously included in the original 1957 Broadway musical. The only Oscar that West Side Story did not win was best adapted screenplay. But still, 10 out of 11 Oscars wins... Not that bad. The reason I bring this up is because it is very, very risky to remake what is considered a great movie. But then again, as great a movie as West Side Story was and how it still stands as one of the best musicals of all time, it does have some noticeable weaknesses. The biggest weakness is the fact that the main Puerto Rican actress, or rather the main Puerto Rican character, Maria, was played by Natalie Wood, who did not have a drop of Latina blood in her. To Steven Spielberg's credit, in this film, the people who are the Sharks, the Puerto Rican uh, gang in this film, had to be at least of partial Puerto Rican descent. So I give Steven Spielberg a lot of credit for actually casting Latin X actors to play the sharks. And also, um, this film is co-produced by Rita Moreno, who actually makes an appearance in this film. So West Side Story, the remake, uh, which comes literally 70 years after, excuse me, 60 years after the original West Side Story, has some assets going for it. Now, Steven Spielberg is directing a musical, as hard as this is to believe given his repertoire, for the very first time. Now, some uh, genres Steven Spielberg can do really well. He can do historical dramas incredibly well. He can do science fiction films, action films. Those are his forte. He does, however, have some weaknesses. For instance... 
his comedy repertoire has been somewhat um, wishy-washy. For example, he directed 1941, which is not considered one of John Belushi's best films, but it's adequate. And he also has had a wishy-washy um, uh, reputation in terms of sequels. Now, he did direct Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, but he also directed Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. He also directed The Lost World Jurassic Park, which was not nearly as good as the original. So Steven Spielberg, to his credit, is taking a risk here. Will it be a, a successful risk? Will the risk pay off? Well, I don't know, but I will see the film, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to be released in theaters is a movie that's called Agnes, which is a horror drama film. It's a movie about rumors of demonic possession at a religious convent that prompts a church investigation into the strange goings-on among its nuns. A disaffected priest and his neophyte are confronted with temptation, bloodshed, and a crisis of faith. The movie stars Molly Quinn, Sean Gunn, Chris Sullivan, and Chris Browning. Given the roster of talent here, I don't know all these actors, so I don't know if I'm going to see this film. And as hard as this is to believe, Agnes is not one of the films in the Conjuring series. The Conjuring already had a creepy nun. It made a cameo in the first film and developed its own unnecessary spinoff, which was okay, but it wasn't particularly scary. That spinoff was called The Nun. And I think the idea of nuns being possessed by Satan, that has been done before. But if I do see this film, I'm going to give it a chance. But I don't know whether or not this film is going to be released in the theater near me. If it is and I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to be released in theaters in America on December 10th is a film that's called France. And this is a movie that I believe is French. And it's a movie about a celebrity journalist juggling her busy career and personal life has her life overturned by a freak car accident. The movie stars Léa Sado, Blanche Garden, Benjamin Biolay, and Emmanuel Arioli and is directed by Bruno Dumont, who is a French director. So it stands to reason that this film is a French film, and not just because it's called France, although that is an odd name for a film about a celebrity journalist. But Léa Sado actually has some uh, credibility in the uh, American film industry. For example... She had a supporting role in the film Blue is the Warmest Color, which was about a lesbian romance and was rated NC-17. She also played a Bond girl in the movie Spectre. She played Gabrielle in Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. And she also had a supporting role in the um, cult classic The Lobster, which came out in 2015. And that was a film I wasn't crazy about, but I did admire it for its originality. Is France a movie I'm going to see? Maybe. But if it's out in the theater near me, I'll see it, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. The last film that is listed here that is subject to be released on December 10th is a film that's called Violence of Action. It's a movie that is about a man by the name of James Harper who 
after being involuntarily discharged from the Marines, joins a paramilitary organization in order to support his family the only way he knows how. This movie has a few uh, well-known actors, including Florian Monteau, Chris Pine, Jillian Jacobs, and Kiefer Sutherland. I don't know who Florian Montenot is, but I might give this film a chance if I see it in a theater near me, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.